it's sort of like a 1%, 99% issue. It's like, why do we still want to give all the money to the monopoly utility rather than investing in all sorts of kind of cool um, local choice energy situations? What happens when electric utilities agree to a low-carbon future but at a massive price premium with little opportunity for customers to share the wealth with rooftop solar or community energy? Marielle Nanasi is Executive Directory of New Energy Economy in New Mexico, and her organization has been in the trenches at the legislature, the Public Regulation Commission, and even the state Supreme Court to defend New Mexico customers from the monopoly electric utilities efforts to line shareholder pockets while sticking it to customers. She joins me to talk about why we shouldn't have to buy off incumbent monopolies to get clean energy. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Mariel, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, John. So let's talk about the Energy Transition Act. This is a bill, Senate Bill 489 in New Mexico. Uh, I There's so much here to unpack. Uh, I think if we were fair, we might call it some sort of monopoly protection act in terms of the way that it uh, removes oversight for the PNM, the large incumbent electric utility in New Mexico, under the auspices of advancing clean energy. Um, There's so many different pieces here to uh, try to tackle. Why don't we start with the one about money, because that's the thing that a lot of people pay attention to. First, the, the first thing is, and, I, and, and stuff that has been released by New Energy Economy, it sounds like this is going to be way more expensive than uh, a competitive process for getting the state to clean energy goals. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One is, is that uh, there were some sec- national securitization experts that actually came to New Mexico. And... Um, do let me just say very 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 quickly about what securitization is securitization is a wall street financing mechanism that essentially turns a um a deficit um on a utility's books into um an asset and the way that it does that is by um selling these um failed assets um to in, in to a uh, bondholders, and then the bondholders give the money right up front to the utility, and then ratepayers must pay that bond back um, over a certain period of time. In our case, it's 25 years at essentially a four percent um, interest rate. Um, and so the the deal is is that um, in our case the bonded amount will probably be um, around $1.3 billion, which is $400 million more than what it would cost under traditional rate making. Now, when these national securitization experts came, they said, we've done securitization 64 times in the United States, and not one of those times has the utility been able to predetermine the amount that it wants. Um, and, but in this case, in our case, um, it has done so. And so this is, this is extraordinary and, um, and what they called unprecedented, and that's their um, word, 
um, to describe um, the Energy Transition Act, which is what we're facing in New Mexico right now in the legislature. So um, there is a clean securitization bill that is also going through the legislature. And if and that one we wouldn't we, we would support. Um, so if there's a way to lower the interest rate paid and there actually ensures that there is a benefit, um, a financial benefit for ratepayers um, for lowering interest um, rates, we'd be open to that. But this this um, this bill does not do that. So, Mariel, this is, I think, super important because this is a really obscure term that the, most people might think of the word securitization and draw a blank, and a small fraction might think of it in connection to the 2008 financial crisis when securitization meant putting together a bunch of crappy mortgages and then giving them an A rating. And, and yet there are other places in other states, and you mentioned this, there are ways to do this that can have benefits for the public. So I think Colorado actually has a bill right now or some legislation around this very thing. And the idea is we take an expensive, dirty power plant that is still on the utilities books and we essentially like refinance it with public money, but at a lower interest rate than we would have to pay back to the utility. And there, and, and in that case, everybody can win. The utility gets it off its books. They still get some money, but maybe not as much as they would have. And the public saves money because they're now paying at a lower interest rate. Is that how a clean bill, a clean securitization bill would work for New Mexico? Yes. And um, the, uh, the other part of it is that first, the commission would determine the amount that the public is liable for. And that's a critical part. So in this, in our case right now, under the Energy Transition Act, um, one of the big problems with it is that it predetermines how much PNM is supposed to is enti- quote unquote entitled to. Um, but in the PRC or in the regulatory um, agency would determine that after a whole vetting process to, to see how much should the public be on the hook for to begin with. And that's one of the main issues. Um, the, right now, we have the best consumer um, protection agency that we've ever had in New Mexico. And so this is an end run around that agency and their oversight and scrutiny. So there, unfortunately, this seems to be variations on a theme that that kind of policy passed in Minnesota about a year and a half ago. A utility ran a power plant through the legislature instead of through the commission, probably for, out of similar concerns. Uh, it sounds like in addition to running around the consumer protection role of the regulator for securitization, though, there are other parts of this bill that are running around that normal process in terms of how you would replace that dirty energy with clean energy. Is that right? Yes, um, that is absolutely right. And that is um, a, another term. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but it's about competitive procurement. But let's just break that down. And that means that when a utility wants to uh, obtain new resources, whether it's specific, like they say, we want 50 megawatts or 100 megawatts of solar, or whether whether it's more general than that and just we have 100 megawatts and 
Um, we, you know, and it's an all resource um, request for proposals. And so they, they put out this request for a proposal and the utility can compete as well as independent power producers and in our um, case, Pueblos. So Pueblos could come in and say, we want to, we want to bid in 100 megawatts and serve Albuquerque or serve Santa Fe or whatever it is where the load center is. And so, but PNM, of course, doesn't want to compete. They want to enlarge or enhance their monopoly. So not only are they going to get this boatload of money right away, but then they're going to take that money and then re and then invest it in new resources. And when they put it in those new resources, some of which I think will be not wise, um, like more gas, um, but even if they invested in solar, evidence has demonstrated that when P&M owns the resource, um, it is 49% higher than if an independent power producer, um, you know, produced that same amount of energy. That is astounding. Do you have a sense, uh, I know that that study was primarily around P&M, but do you have a sense of whether or not that kind of finding would be applicable to other states where, you know, there's 30 states that have this kind of utility structure. Do you think it's common that the incumbent monopoly has such a higher cost for the power they provide when they own it? Um, well, uh, the thing is, is that most utilities get a what's called a return on equity and um, for all their assets. So let's say there's a solar plant. Um, this is P&M's newest um, brainchild. They not only owned the asset and sold us the electricity, and it was a solar asset, and that's the one that we just, um, it's literally a case that I have pending in the New Mexico Supreme Court. And so P&M um, rigged a bid so that they could own it. Um, and they ended up owning it and saying that that was the most uh, that was the most best beneficial for ratepayers. The hearing examiner sided with New Energy Economy and denied the resource, but uh, in a sleight of hand, the then Public Regulation Commission, um, which was corrupt, um, overturned her decision, even though she was the only one who heard all the evidence and read all the briefs. Um, and it, anyway, I don't want to go into the whole why they were corrupt, but what happened was is that P&M not only makes money on the electricity that it sells us from, from that 50-megawatt solar facility, but then it gets a 9.575%, which let's just call it 95 9.5% return on the solar panels themselves on the asset itself, and then... Their newest brainchild was they said, well, the land that the solar sits on is also an asset, and we want to get a 9.5% return on the land itself also. So that was another cost that they were going to that, – that was ultimately approved, and that case is on appeal in the New Mexico Supreme Court. And that, that 50 megawatts was 49% more costly for ratepayers – than an independent power producer 
50 megawatts that w- that occurred like four months. There was a four month time span difference, and was also approved by the by the public regulation agency. So that's crazy. So at minimum, the utility gets a 10 percent. Um, higher cost, but there is an incentive, a perverse incentive for them to make as much money because when they charge us more, they make more money. Oh, I, I feel like this is all just such a breath of fresh air in terms of describing how this system works in a way that for most people is very inaccessible and archaic. Um, one of the other things that was brought up in the uh, uh, in, in the documents that New Energy Economy has produced and, and shared with legislators and other decision makers around this was also about where the clean energy is going to come from to meet the higher standards. So the bill would, with all of these problems in it in terms of who's going to get to own it, uh, require some more renewable energy to be built uh, or to supply New Mexico customers, but it sounds like it may not be necessarily built in New Mexico for the economic advantage of of the communities there. Exactly. Um, so the the one thing that we support in the bill, um, though there's some issues, um, is the renewable portfolio standard. And that was thrown in there um, you know, uh, that that's the trade that a lot of other environmental organizations um, made, which is you give us this renewal, higher renewable portfolio standard, and basically we will give you lots of money and essentially allow you to own all the replacement power um, and other things as well. Um, and that was the trade that was made. And um, the, one of the problems um, in that trade was that the utility said, well, we don't want to have to build all the renewable port, uh, the renewable energy or buy the renewable energy from customers in New Mexico. We want to, for instance, um, you know, be able to buy RECs, renewable energy credits, um, so literally, the energy, the renewable energy, could be built in Colorado or Arizona or Texas or anywhere, and then all the utilities have to do is buy the renewable energy credits associated uh, with that actual energy production. But it doesn't even have to be in New Mexico. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about the San Juan coal plant that's at the heart of this debate. 18th dirtiest in the nation. We'll talk about the alternatives to centralized monopoly provided electricity and the failure of public oversight to protect the public interest as technology has enabled energy democracy. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute to go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. That's ILSR.org. 
And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I feel like we've covered a lot of the issues with this bill, the the fact that it's a a sweetheart deal around securitization in terms of letting the utility decide how much money they would get back. Uh, there's the sort of predetermination of prudency, to use the technical term, but basically saying that the re- commission, the regulators, don't get a chance to review the cost of these renewable energy systems the utility would build. Um, what What's at the center of this? You know, this is about a big coal plant, right? That is kind of at the heart of this that the utility has owned for a long time. And tell me a little bit more about that. So this is one of the dirtiest um, coal plants in the entire um, United States. I think I saw a while back a study that said it was the 18th dirtiest out of 500 coal plants at the time. So it's a pretty bad plant. And those, you know, toxic um, the stacks are hovering over, not entirely, but mainly Navajo Nation, which um, back in the 60s, the Nixon administration labeled an energy sacrifice zone um, because there was so much uranium mining and so much coal production there. Um, And they have really borne the brunt of uh, disproportionately of uh, of our electricity usage, so it's it's spewing there, 300 miles away um, from Albuquerque and Santa Fe, that have some of the cleanest air in the country. Um, and you might have heard there is a methane cloud um, also over that same area um, in the Four Corners that um, they say is the size of the state of Delaware. So, um, and, and the San Juan mine, um, the mine associated with the San Juan plant generating station is the second, um, greatest methane emitter in New Mexico. So it's, it's, it's a very dirty plant. Um, and you might, people might have heard that there was a new report that just came out a couple of days ago by Earth Justice um, that talks also about um, that most of the coal plants in the United States are leaking coal ash into waterways. And that, we believe, is also happening at, at San Juan Generating Station. So this is a toxic waste dump. And, um, and it's and it's it's costing customers right now today more um, in electricity than renewable energy because we have abundant renewable energy resources in New Mexico, and yet P and M and the other um, and one of the other investor-owned utilities, El Paso Electric, has very little actual renewable energy in their port energy portfolio that um, that produces electricity for us. And so this plant has been the target um, by invent- environmental organizations for 10 years or more um, to try to close it. 
And so we're really glad that it's going to be closing. Um, New Energy Economy, the organization that I run, fought extraordinarily hard to close it um, back in 2015. uh, P&M took the position that, uh, oh, we'll close half of the plant, but we'll we'll have the plant um, continue indefinitely. And then one year later, they agreed with New Energy Economy and said, you know what, actually, it's not cost-effective. You were right. Um, and we should close it down in 2022. And so we're glad that it's closing down. We wish it was earlier. If they had... If they had, in fact, closed it earlier, we would have given them 100% of their, quote, undepreciated assets. So that's like another huge wonky term. And what it means is essentially like they have a mortgage, like you have a mortgage on your house and you, you know, you pay, start paying it on day one and on the 30th year, um, you own it outright. Um and, you know, even if the house costs $350,000, it might ultimately, with all the interest, really be costing you $800,000. But you have that time, you have that 30 years to um, pay it off. Well, this plant by 2022 will be a 50-year-old plant. You would think we would have paid it all off by then. Um, there is no plant in the United States that has been around for 85 years, but P&M we believe imprudently had it on their books, like literally their financial accounting books, as mortgaged out till 2053. And so they said, well, if we close it in 2022, we still want all the money that we were going to collect from ratepayers between 2022 and 2053. Well, that's essentially 31 years. And more of collecting from us, but we will receive nothing, zero, not a kilowatt of electricity from that, and yet they want to get the money from us. And so that's another part of why we would rather have this fight in front of the Public Regulation Commission, because we can say, hey, in 2015, you said this plant was cost-effective, and now you're saying, no, it's got to close really soon, but you still want the money. And it would have been one thing if we had paid you back um, for everything in 2015, but now you extended it and you've invested more in the plant, and we don't want to pay that, and that's unfair. And there's a law that is that is not only New Mexico law, but is pretty standard regulatory law in the country that says when there is some kind of burden, financial burden um, like this, um, or like an unexpected boiler breaks or something like that, and it's a lot of money, there is law that says there should be a sharing of the burden between investors and ratepayers, which kind of just makes sense. And then sometimes that's just straight up determined as a 50-50 split. And sometimes after a hearing, maybe it's 70-30 or uh, 20-80, you know, depending on what the situation is. Um, But here, again, P&M is going, running to the legislature, which, by the way, they, you know, give a lot of money to those legislators for their election campaigns, um, and say, hey, just give us 100% without any vetting whatsoever. And these legislators don't know um, what the issues are surrounding this coal plant and all the associated liabilities. And so that's one of the big problems that we're having is that in most 
situations when the best practice is implemented, it's after a hearing at the PRC, not before. And so that's another major problem with SB 489. So I don't want to cut you off because there's so much in this bill that is a problem, but I'm also interested in having you talk a little bit about the community solar policy that's also been introduced in the legislature, both interested in how that policy is going and what that might do differently as well. Um, Is there anything else, though, that we should know about this Energy Transition Act, uh, just as a warning, I, you know, I wanted to mention, actually, I was going to do this earlier. Um, this bill reminds me a lot of one that has been introduced in Minnesota. It's, it's under the title Clean Energy First, but I think its full name should be Clean Energy First, Shareholders Second, and Customers Last, because it has the exact same kind of language that you've raised as a concern about utilities getting to own all of the replacement energy for the stuff that they shut down without any competitive bidding. And given the price premium that PNM charges, it seems like that would be similarly problematic. So is there anything else that we should know about this act? Yeah, I just want to just comment on that because that's really beautifully put and succinctly put by you. I think the thing is, is that we're at a unique moment in in the um, provision of energy. And that is that it used to be that you know, there would be centralized energy, huge coal plants or gas plants or nuclear plants, and then there would be wires, those huge transmission lines that transmit it from where it's produced to what we call the load center, so the big cities, essentially. And But now we have a new way, um, and the new way is that we can have distributed energy, especially in a place like New Mexico, um, where we could put up solar next to the biggest plant, uh, the biggest cities, or we can even put wind, but much closer to where actually the, the, um, the load centers are. And so to double down on um, the old, old way, which is centralized plants, it's sort of like yeah, dial-up telephones were great compared to calling an operator, but no one who has a cell phone today would ever want to go back to dial-up. And essentially these bills that double down and increase, enlarge, enhance, um, exacerbate the, P- the, the utility monopoly structure, cheat us, cheat the people of lower-cost decentralized energy. Um, And the reason why this is so important is because it's sort of like a 1%, 99% issue. It's like, why do we still want to give all the money to the monopoly utility rather than investing in all sorts of kind of cool um, local choice energy situations? So in that way, I can just now go into the community solar really quickly. And that is a a structure I think that, you know, you all have the best um, community solar bill in the country, and we we really look to you for that and modeled our community solar, and I think enhanced it, even made it even better. Um, And so if this community solar bill gets passed, it probably will be the best in the country, and hopefully we'll have a lot of um, investment in New Mexico to do it. And that is, you know, community solar is essentially what rooftop solar is, except that it's not on your premise, and it aggregates 
um, many different subscribers, um, and those subscribers buy subscriptions to the extent that they need that electricity. But all of the subscribers together can buy solar for cheaper. And so our solar bill allows um, up to 10 megawatts, and that's particularly good for um, for cities that want to do um, solar for low income, for businesses. And I think that the, probably the two entities that um, that would benefit the most is our low income and businesses because though that those groups are the most sensitive to price volatility and electricity rate increases um, and so uh, this would would be a hedge against rising electric utility rates and it's gone very well um, it's passed the house. Um, it passed its first Senate um, committee. It's going to its second S- Senate committee um, this coming Saturday. And then I think it will be, you know, go to the Senate floor. And that will be um, a real benefit to to local communities, to businesses, to low income, to cities that want to produce and sell solar itself and Instead of literally sending the money to the um, investor-owned utility, which goes ultimately to Wall Street shareholders, that money will will stay in the community and will be repurposed. And so, especially for for pueblos or cities that do this kind of work, um, then the money that's generated um, from the community solar, they will literally have more money to spend on other community needs, whether that's healthcare or homelessness or all the other problems that are we are facing. So, Mariel, I just want to thank you so much for talking with me. I wanted to leave you with uh, a chance to just reflect on this Scott Hempling essay that I've been sharing around. Uh, the title of it is Commissions Are Not Courts and Regulators Are Not Judges, as you probably know only too well as you are in front of the New Mexico Supreme Court after having a frustrating experience trying to uh, get good outcomes from the regulators there. But I, what I thought was most interesting about this was the way in which uh, he, he has this one sentence in the thing, in his piece, where he says that the scatter plot of private interests appearing in a proceeding, you know, talking to regulators, that there, this assumption that they will display some pattern from which the commission, from which regulators can determine the public interest. And what he's essentially saying there is that regulators who think they are judges are assuming that everybody who gets to come and participate in those very complex and opaque legal proceedings uh, is sufficient to determine what the public interest is, even though it's very difficult, as you well know, to participate in a public utilities commission process uh, and that the parties that are involved have a lot of self-interest and not the public interest. So I don't know if you have any further thoughts on that, but I just thought that essay was a terrific description of the problem that many commissioners have seeing themselves as somehow sitting between the public interest and the private interest rather than representing the public interest. 
Exactly. I read that essay. And I, I think that, that it, that's a very keen and nuanced um, understanding of the situation. I mean, those regu- regulators, in our case, it's called the Public Regulation Commission. And so they're supposed to be regulating on behalf of the public. And, I, you know, I, I was thinking last night, what really has been sacrificed um, here in, in New Mexico um, is the common good. And, you know, that's what we've been seeing. And that's gotten to us, gotten us to this moment of both a climate crisis and a crisis of income inequality. And in order to really step in and make major changes, which we would have to do in order to support the people who are really hungry for 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 radical change is to start investing back into the community. And that means taking away, removing the, the license of these monopolies to run ranchot over, over our environment, our health, and our economy. I can't think of any better way to have concluded our conversation, Mariel. Thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck in your fight against this terrible bill. Thank you so much, John, for everything that you do and for talking with me today. This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with Marielle Nanasi of New Energy Economy about why we shouldn't have to buy off incumbent monopolies to get clean energy. You can hear two other interviews with Marielle in our local Energy Rules Archive about her work with the City of Santa Fe to explore local solutions to the utility's reluctance to embrace affordable, renewable energy. In our 2016 interview with Mariel, for example, she notes how poor public oversight of the monopoly resulted in the utility's earnings rising 461% from 2008 to 2014, even while the area's median household income fell by 6.4%. For more information on the battle for energy democracy in New Mexico, sign up for updates from New Energy Economy. While you're at our website finding those other interviews with Mariel, you can also find more than 70 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.